Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk about watches and wonders, AGS Conclave, and Russian diamonds. everyone. Welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, the News Director of JCK and JCK Online, calling in from New York City. In New York, after your fabulous vacay in New Brunswick, New Jersey. <laughs> yes, uh, that was a wild uh, podcast last time. It was. It was I got a- Good, good responses to it. Yes. I mean, he was more articulate than any, you know, most 50 year olds I know. So a 23 year old who's done that well is, I guess, bodes well for Gen Z. If they're all as thoughtful and um, insightful as Ziad is, then I do think that bodes well. I'm not sure that the whole generation will live up to his high standards. But yeah, I think he was, you know, yeah. had a good energy. He has to get over the period thing, but that's okay. I've been talking about that, by the way. I was at an event yesterday and I was with a younger millennial who's kind of close to the border between Gen Z and millennial. And I said, did you know this? And she's like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I totally knew that. I was like, whoa, this is important knowledge that I was really missing. I really felt my age at that point. I have a friend who, you know, always uses periods and question marks when he does text, like he does it perfectly and capitalizes and everything. And uh, I find it impressive, actually. Me too. I was like, wow, that's good. That's thoughtful. It's careful. By the way, I was also told by this uh, younger millennial that capitalization is a (laughs) no-no. Well, there you go. You know, it's rocking my world this time. I have to like stew on it and Uh, figure out how I can can live with it. These are are huge problems, obviously. Um, Anyway, we haven't done one of these in a while a discussion podcast because you had a family issue your father was sick and unfortunately he passed away and i know a lot of people offered their condolences and just like to offer them again i hope you're doing okay thank you it's it's been a month and it's been really hard um my dad passed away after a four-year battle with cancer and um yeah i joined that club now so <laughs> Not a, not a club you want to be a member of. No, but you know, I must say the timing of it, while never good, I was in Geneva for the Watches and Wonders Fair and I was due to come back on April 4th and I just hadn't realized my dad was in a precarious a place as he was until really the week that I was going. And so I left for Geneva feeling very, very mixed emotions and very ambivalent and didn't know if I should be there and ended up changing my ticket to come home April 1st, which was just a couple of days into the fair, but I, I did have quite a number of experiences that I will share with you. But my dad ended up passing on April 5th. So, you know, had I come home on my original date of April 4th, I would have missed that whole weekend with him, probably missed seeing him that Monday. And I did get to see him that whole weekend and just very grateful for that. You're grateful for the, the small graces, I guess, you get. And, and how old was he? 76. Going to be 77 in early June or would have been. So not a young man, but too soon in my eyes. Thank you, Rob, though. I know, I know you're a member of this club, too. So <laughs> yes. Anyway, to move on to slightly brighter and at least more uh, industry-appropriate topic, I want to tell you about what the very first thing that I did when I got to Switzerland, because it was pretty interesting. So I you know, need to say right up front, I was a guest of Breitling, which while not an exhibitor at Watchers and Wonders, the fair, for those of you who aren't familiar with Watchers and Wonders, it used to be known as SIHH or the Salon International de la Haute Horlogerie, basically the Salon of High Watchmaking. And it rebranded a couple of years ago and 
they had never had an in-person event in Geneva called Watches and Wonders because it was meant to happen in the spring of 2020. So this was the first in-person Geneva event under that new name. Rolex, Patek Philippe, Chopard, a number of Basel world exhibitors that had left the Basel Fair and, you know, sort of pledged their allegiance to this new Watches and Wonders event, along with all the stalwarts that had been there, the mostly Richemont brands, Cartier, Panerai, IWC, Van Cleef, and a bunch of others. So in any case, Breitling was not an exhibitor at Watches and Wonders, but what George Kern, the CEO, who used to be the CEO of IWC, but in 2017, along with a venture capital company, basically, I think had a personal investment in Breitling, took over and has really transformed that brand in a very interesting and very, you know, kind of a case study sort of way. They've done great in terms of sales, moved up, seized market share during the pandemic. And he did something that was very masterful in terms of marketing. He invited somewhere along the lines of 600 people, a combination of journalists and retailers from all over the world, flew everybody to Zurich on the eve of Watches and Wonders. So I arrived in Zurich on Monday. Watches and Wonders was due to kick off on Wednesday. This is late March. And um, we didn't really know what the plan was, but on Tuesday morning, you know, after sort of settling in and having a dinner on Monday night in Zurich, right at the airport, at the Hyatt Regency at the Zurich airport. We walked across the street in the morning to the airport and Breitling had basically taken over entire wing of the airport. And when you checked in, not only were you checking in, you know, in sort of the normal Zurich airport, when you're, if you're traveling domestically, you'd be checking in for your flight. Breitling had taken over like, I don't know, six or seven desks at that check-in area, branded, had their logo everywhere. You were checking in for a Breitling flight. They commandeered three giant Airbus airplanes. And when you finally went down into your terminal to get to your gate, this whole zone, they just basically did a Zurich airport takeover. I mean, mind you, Breitling, by the way, is very known for its pilot's watches, its aviation-themed timepieces. And the whole reason around this big event was that they were celebrating, gosh, I want to say, is it the 70th anniversary of the Navitimer, their famous sort of navigational timer chronograph introduced in 1952, still one of the icons of the brand. And so you kind of went down these escalators and you enter this whole zone of the airport that's been totally taken over by Breitling. There are people wearing, you know, Breitling kind of outfits or at least things with the Breitling logo, serving champagne and canopy. They've got little boxed lunches for everybody. And you are there waiting for your flight to board. At one point, as we're still waiting, George Kern, the CEO, comes down wearing a full-on captain's outfit, gives a beach, talks about the Navitimer. We all board the plane. I boarded the plane that George Kern was on. And when I boarded, he was literally sitting in the pilot seat. I don't know if he actually flew the plane. I kind of shudder to think if that's that's the case. I, I was told he didn't, but he, he certainly made it look that way. We boarded, and again, this is 600 people people split between three planes and we flew to Geneva and on the flight itself they instead of serving food because we'd gotten our little box lunches the quote-unquote flight attendants basically passed around all the new watches this you know giant selection of brand new Navitimers and what was so brilliant about it was that on the eve of Watches and Wonders, this really important fair that all these important brands are exhibiting, every single journalist had a feed that was dominated by Breitling, you know, on their Instagram. It was, look at what we're doing with Breitling. And so there was just something so like kind of stealing Watches and Wonders thunder in this really interesting, very... I shudder to think about how expensive it was, but probably not as expensive as it would have been to exhibit at Basel World back in the day. So there was some really interesting marketing. I, I on my own feed, I, I joke that it George Kern had taken marketing to new heights. Ha ha ha. 
And he did. And so there was just something so fascinating about how to subvert expectations, how to steal people's thunder, how to take advantage of all these journalists who are coming to Switzerland anyway, and on the eve of this big show to, to make it all about your own brand. So I must say that was pretty, pretty cool. And um, I remember the original idea for Watches and Wonders was it to have a consumer aspect to kind of bring in watch collectors. Did that has, did that happen or? Not so much. I think they definitely pulled back on the collector aspects. Sure, there were collectors there. And if you're one of those known quantities to the brands, and I can think of a few that are super involved on a real industry level, they were there, I'm sure. I'm thinking of people like Gary Getz. If you're familiar with watches, you may know him because he's a very prolific collector, really insightful and astute collector based in Northern California. I don't even remember what his actual job is, but you'd think it were watches because he, he writes for Quill and Pad, another watch blog. He's kind of always involved in the industry conversation, but really he's a collector. He buys these things. So th those types were there, but no, in terms of like a show in the way that if you remember the weekends at Basel World, where they open up the doors to basically families wandering through the show with their strollers and their pets and so on. It wasn't like that. It actually felt to me, and it was a little bit of a relief in that sense because it didn't feel overly crowded. And I'm talking now at Pal Expo, the venue for Watches and Wonders, because there was a huge contingent of Asian buyers and attendees and retailers and press that just weren't there, you know, primarily Chinese because of those continuing COVID-related restrictions in Asia. So it felt emptier, but of course nicer for those of us who are there. It's always nicer to kind of navigate a, a show that has more breathing room for everybody. You didn't have to kind of Back in the day in SIH, you'd have to almost hover over a table waiting for somebody to leave before you could snag a seat and grab some lunch. So that wasn't the case this year. I'm told it was a good show. It, you know, like I said, I left early, so I didn't get the full Watches and Wonders experience, but it really has been a blockbuster year for, for many, many brands or going on two years for many brands during the pandemic and, and into 22. So I think there was a lot of excitement and optimism. One of the trends I noticed, and I'm not sure, it's almost tempting to describe it as a post-pandemic trend because the pieces were introduced this year, but you have to kind of understand they were probably in motion or in progress before the pandemic. There were a lot of travel-themed watches, world timers and GMTs and other takes on the idea of travel or watches that, you know, Rolex famously reintroduced its Air King, had a left-handed version of the GMT, Patek had three brand new world time models. It is tempting to say that it was a reflection of everybody's desire to get back out on the road or kind of travel again. And I think it's fun to interpret it that way, but in all truth, they were probably already ideas or marketing had already planned those out probably as early as 2019, if not even sooner. So I think it was a good show. I mean, I, I like I said, I wasn't there for all of it, but it did seem like people were generally pretty happy. I read this thing the other day about Apple and it mentioned uh, how Johnny Ive, I guess, one of the reasons he left Apple was in a dispute over this fancy Apple watch that they planned to introduce and ended up kind of scaling back as far as the, I think it was this $18,000, $17,000 version. And um, I remember when that was all the talk of, you know, will smartwatches take over the business? And I mean, was there a lot of talk about smartwatches? watches the show you know zero i mean tag hoyer does still do a connected watch and i assume does well enough for it to keep being reinvented or you know new additions coming out so there is that but no and in fact i did just have a conversation not at the show but i did have a conversation with a watch editor at worn and wound which is 
began around a decade ago as a website more focused on accessible watches, you know, kind of sub $1,000 pieces, but has since expanded a very well-respected publication. They run a wind-up fair that is another place for enthusiasts to go and look at watches, one in San Francisco, one in New York, maybe one in Chicago. In any case, he was saying they just had their wind-up fair in San Francisco like a week or two ago, and he overheard somebody, a buyer at the show, talking to an exhibitor about their watches, and he actually said, you know, I, I didn't ever wear a watch and then I got an Apple watch and I realized I really liked wearing watches. And so now I'm looking at mechanical pieces. And this was a, a story that the Swiss told themselves early on around 2015, 2016. And it always felt like, again, like a kind of a story that people were, were telling themselves in order to make themselves feel better that this would happen. And so it was interesting to hear this worn and wound editor, Zach Weiss, actually say, I literally heard someone say that. So I'm not sure that that's a wide phenomenon, but I wouldn't be surprised if it is happening and if the Apple Watch and smartwatches in general have just ignited more interest among buyers who may never have looked at a watch. I remember when we did a few years back, we all tested out smartwatches and I hadn't worn a watch in a long time. And, you know, these were very early smartwatches and I didn't really find that much utility in having this thing on my wrist versus in my pocket. But I did realize that, you know, it really is handy to have a watch and be able to check the time very quickly. It definitely uh, reminded me that it's a, actually a very handy thing to have. Well, you know, I, I've always felt like there are two kinds of people in the world, those that do feel the need to wear a watch and those that don't. I've always been a watch wearer, even long before I really became a watch writer. I feel pretty naked without a watch, and I have quite a few, come to think of it. You know, you can't help but amass a collection over the years. Um, and I did, for those of you watch nerds out there in, in Geneva, I did also get another really delightful watch, which is a mad edition. It's basically MBNF, the high-end boutique brand, did a subline called Mad Editions of more accessible watches for basically for friends and it was kind of the get in Basel because they came out with Mad One Red so it's a really cool watch and if you're a mechanical watch fan or just kind of a lover of avant-garde design you're going to be jealous I'm wearing it right now so one last thing before we switch gears and we talk about AGS, but Tag Warrior did have one of the most interesting introductions at the show. And it was, of course, this Plasma Carrera timepiece featuring something on the order of almost 14 carats, I want to say, of lab-grown diamonds. You know, and they'd worked with all kinds of specialists to create these diamonds, including a single crystal that was used to form the crown. And then all these different shapes that they used to decorate the case. And then the entire dial of the watch was like a single polycrystalline I guess, slice of diamond. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the correct terminology, but it was spectacular. And, and the crowd it attracted, there was just a one-off piece in a rotating display at the Tag Heuer booth. And there was a crowd. I mean, a real crowd gawking and getting an eyeful there. And I spoke to their chief innovation officer about the watch and about their efforts. And it really wasn't a real novelty. I mean, the Swiss like to throw that word around, but this was truly something new. I don't know of other Swiss brands using lab-grown diamonds. Maybe we'll see that now, but I had not heard of that. Had you? Do you know of many Swiss brands that are using graded stones? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. And I mean, I think what's interesting about how they did it was, from what I understand, is they used unusual shapes, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Custom shapes. Everything was, you know, super idiosyncratic and particular. And like, I think they worked with at least one Israeli company, a startup that specializes in really innovative crystal cutting. And yeah, it looked cool. It was the 
crown itself was amazing. I can't remember. I, it was quite big. I don't know the dimensions offhand, but it was, it was super eye-catching. And, and their whole point, and when their PR first came to me about it, she made clear, we're not doing this because we want to have a conversation about sustainability. We're doing this simply because lab-grown diamonds are the only way to allow us to be creative in the way we want to be. You can't create a full single crystal crown out of a natural stone. It's just cost prohibitive. You know, a lot of these shapes, they just don't make sense to create using natural stones because nobody does that with natural diamonds. But with lab grown, there's room. And the chief innovation officer talked a lot about how excited the designers were to use this material, how much it unleashed their creativity. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that's interesting about lab grown diamonds that I think that sector has not taken full advantage of is the fact that they can be customized in ways that natural diamonds can't since natural diamonds are limited by what you get out of the ground. Whereas lab grown diamonds, at least theoretically, you know, you have infinite possibilities, uh, especially as far as, you know, colors and designs. And I mean, there's all sorts of cool things you can do with them that I don't think have been done yet, but it's cool to see that Ted Hoyer has, has started along that road. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. So you were just at AGS, at the American Gem Society Conclave in Oklahoma City. I want to hear the whole experience, but was lab-grown a big theme there? You know, it was a theme. I mean, it was something that people talked about, but I think if there was kind of a big issue, uh, well, I would say there were two big issues. I mean, I think Russian diamonds was something that a lot of people addressed and talked about and were, were certainly thinking about. And then just the fact that things were uh, slowing down a bit. Not terribly. I mean, I think in some people's sales have held up fine and some people are starting to see things slow. So, I mean, you know, the jewelry industry's had an amazing party for the last year. So uh, it obviously is not going to go on forever. But um, I think lab grown, you know, it's not, you know, AGS doesn't seem to be a heavy lab grown crowd. I mean, there are people there who use it and there are some people who don't. And uh, there's some people who, you know, feel the customer's always was right and some people who don't believe in it some people who strongly believe in it like Kelsberg for example is an AGS member so it was not a very big uh, lab grown crowd and you know a lot of the discussion around lab grown was about you know is there undisclosed out there and and, uh, you know how do you make sure that you know when you do take-ins that you aren't buying something uh, a lab grown that is billed as a natural so in a way it's been over discussed people have their opinions on it at this point most people have chosen yes or no, or sometimes, depending on their feelings about it. I think the price drops have definitely spooked some people perhaps from going into it. But uh, it came up probably a lot less than I figured, given how much it's dominated the conversation. And again, a lot of the conversation was on an arguably more pressing topic, which is Russia and Russian diamonds. Uh, if you compare the market share of even now with, with of Russian diamonds versus lab-grown diamonds. I mean, there's no question there's a lot more Russian diamonds out there than lab-grown diamonds. What was the consensus among most of the people you spoke with at Conclave about Russian diamonds? Had everybody sort of done their due diligence and made sure that they weren't sourcing them anymore or stocking them? I mean, what did people say? I I just think there was confusion about what to do about it. And, you know, there was some concern and some worry about the reputational aspects of it. But I think most people, I think the, you know, the general consensus, I think, 
think was that most people, obviously, first of all, they they understand the need to follow the law and to certainly follow the spirit of the law. And um, they also don't necessarily want to be associated with with the things that they see on on TV. So it's a big deal. And I think it's a it's a challenge for the for the industry. Yeah, I mean, God, it, it is really a more. If, I don't know if morass. I guess that's the word coming to mind. It feels like a really complicated, thorny situation. I know there, there's a lot to say here, but I want to hear in general about Conclave. I just want to hear about your experience, the mood, any other interesting sessions or conversations. Like, what what was your takeaway from from? And how many nights were you there? So I was there about two or. three three i think three nights or four nights i can't remember um i think the mood was good they had 650 people i believe i think that was the number that i I heard which is like a a great number it's it's among the highest attended conclaves so they were they were really happy about that i think the mood in general even though things were slowing and there were concerns and there you know people are nervous about a whole bunch of stuff people coming off some of their best uh years ever the mood couldn't help but be good and you know it's always nice to see people face to face you know there was some interesting sessions there was a russian diamond session there was um i moderated uh something on what the opportunities were i think there's a lot of thought about you know the industry's gotten all these new customers in the last year how do we keep them how do we keep reaching out to them and how do we keep the momentum going and i think that's something that's going to be a challenge because people are starting to travel again just like i traveled and you traveled you know people aren't staying home they're going out and uh that will be competition for jewelry obviously there was a lot of sessions on sustainability and um different forms and the laws regarding sustainability as far as you know the verbiage you can use so i mean there's a, a lot of discussion about that i think you know, people talked about traceability, origin. So it was a nice uh, conclave. Yeah, it seemed just from the pictures on social media that people were having a blast. I'm uh, I'm curious how all this will translate to Vegas. I, I've talked to a few people about the upcoming JCK and luxury shows. And from a couple of people's perspective, they think it's going to be the most blockbuster Vegas we've seen in a long, 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 long time. And I wonder if the slowing, we're see- I mean, clearly people did so well in 21 and probably probably even at the start of 22, that you would imagine there is a real profound need to restock and pick up new lines. And again, how do you keep the momentum going if you don't have new jewelry to show people? One other thing I should say about Vegas is um, in the magazine that the issue that's just about coming out now, and if you haven't seen our pre-show issue, the May issue, it is utterly fantastic. And the cover specifically has attracted so much attention and so much great feedback. So when you see it, I think you'll agree with me. But in the issue, we have an article from a longtime freelancer of ours who's a specialist in Vegas. He's uh, He's been covering Vegas for, gosh, maybe 15 years or so, often writes about it for guidebooks. And I interviewed him recently for one of our special report newsletters. And the amount of newness in Vegas in terms of restaurants and entertainment and experiences is just off the charts. There is a lot of excitement just in the town itself around ways to keep people entertained in really innovative new ways. There's, again, these experiences where you're not just getting a drink. There's a place called Liftoff. That's actually a place, a retail complex called Area 15. It's very close. It's, you know, maybe a 10 minute Uber ride from the Venetian. You buy a ticket and you get on and it takes you up in the air and you have your drinks. I imagine it's like an amusement park ride, except you hover over the city having your drinks and then you come down and it's just one of those things that you're not going to get that anywhere else. And so I do think there is excitement around Vegas and I'm really 
really excited just to have these experiences because what else do you go to Vegas for except to come away saying, wow, you know, that couldn't have happened anywhere else. And again, you know, what my experience, I would say at AGS and at 24 Carat and last year's Vegas has shown once again is that you can do these things online, but there really is no, it's so much better doing it in person just very nice to see everybody you know and you you, I feel I haven't lost touch with them necessarily because I've talked to them on the phone and I've done zoom and you know there's been periodic events but to really you know see and hang out with somebody and talk I mean it's just a different feeling and it's it's a nice feeling it really is it really is a nice feeling and it I think it's wonderful because all our fears about the world going digital and metaverses and nfts I think you have this reminder that nothing beats that experience of connecting with people in person, seeing jewelry in person. It's all pretty, I guess, what's the word? I mean, just a relief because I think we all feel better once we see our friends and our colleagues and our, our longtime you know, sources and are able to connect with them in a way that just is not at all possible via Zoom. Yeah. And we've just been reminded that uh, it's the 30th anniversary of the show. I remember doing the 20th anniversary story. That was, God, that was a while ago, but uh, yeah, 30 years. That's amazing. It's a millennial. <laughs> yeah, it's old. It's uh, it's it's ready to go uh, settle down, have kids. <laughs> yeah, our baby's grown up. <laughs> there you go. I remember the, I, I didn't go to the first one, but I, I remember when it launched. So um, it's, uh, it, it truly is, I mean, it's a big, incredible institution. And I think people are happy for it to get back to normal, back in business. And uh, yeah, it should definitely be a jam and show and it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, well, and we have one more guest before the actual Vegas show starts. And mind you, it's a little later this year. Everything kicks off on the Wednesday, June 8th, which which is when Luxury opens and then JCK opens June 10th. So before then, we will have one other very special guest to talk about the show and all the highlights. So we'll revisit this topic again and again and again. Um, Before we sign off, I didn't want to give short shrift to the, the Russia conversation. Is there anything kind of key or essential for people to understand about that evolving sanctions conversation? conversation that you think we can sort of sign off? Well, I I think that when the U.S. put Alrosa on the OFAC list, which is the kind of the sanctioned entity list when it made it what they call a special designated national, that was really kind of a big hit to Alrosa, which is the big Russian diamond miner, which is one third owned by the Russian government. And I, you know, from what I hear, it's really not selling that much because it's 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 very difficult. There's logistical issues and, you know, as far as getting insurance, as far as getting couriers, as far as how do you pay people? I, I think these sanctions were in a way, I mean, a lot of people were saying, okay, there's a big loophole in that diamonds cut and polished elsewhere, you know, are allowed to come into America. But from everything I hear, I mean, Alrosa isn't selling zero, but it's it, there's just not that many newly mined Russian diamonds on the market. And uh, and I think that's a large part because of this olfacting. Now, will that go on forever? We don't know. I mean, I think they've really taken a bite out of it. And I think that um, a lot of people in the industry are paying more attention to traceability and to sourcing and to what they buy. And that's, that's good. Yeah, that is good. All right, Rob. Well, thank you very much. Always an insightful conversation. Looking forward to seeing you in Vegas. Yes, I'm looking forward to seeing you. I'm looking forward to seeing all our listeners. We'll see you guys soon. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. 
We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.